The Burroughs of Berea is a conversational podcast. We study the Bible and we talk about it. Not all of us are of the same faith, and one of us doesn't actually have a faith. And that's wonderful. We all love one another, and we're going to continue to talk about these things. The things we believe in and the things we believe about what we read in the Bible. Not all of these are necessarily true. Some of it is opinion and speculation. Thank you for listening and speculating with us. There you go. That was good. Yes. Oops, oops, oops. <laughs> you are listening to the Burrows of Berea. Hey guys, this is Andy. Today's episode is a recording from a few months ago when Rick Welch spoke at Berean Bible Church on the topic, Switching Perspectives on the Crucifixion. We hope you enjoy. And so does Greg. So... Most of you know me as a cast member on the podcast, The Burrows of Berea, and to be perfectly honest, I never considered when I sat down in Giraffe Studio with Andy Bishop and Billy Kimsey to record a Bible study that it would ultimately lead me here. Yet by God's grace and providence, I stand here today with a different understanding of the scriptures, an entirely different worldview, and with that worldview, a new outlook on life. If you've listened to our podcast, you know that we like to speculate about what the Bible says. And by speculate, I mean that rather than just trust tradition, we try to figure out if our traditions are based in fact. The way we do this is by taking different approaches to the text themselves. And one of those approaches toward the text came to me when I wrote my first film called The Resurrection and the Life. It was a film where I used the Gospel of John for all of my dialogue and narrative. Attempting to be clever, which I do quite often, <laughs> I wanted to put in the credits written by the Apostle John. The only problem was the gospel itself never actually tells you that it's John. In fact, the author speaks directly to us in that gospel, but in my opinion, I couldn't come to the conclusion that it in fact was the Apostle John. The Apostle John, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, who was one of the intimate disciples who lived and worked by the Sea of Galilee as a fisherman in his father's business alongside Andrew and his brother Peter. All of these men were most likely uneducated, couldn't write Greek, and were simple men when they were first called by the Lord Jesus Christ to follow him. Here at Berean Bible Church, you know the position Pastor Curtis takes on that particular subject. I also believe that it was Lazarus, otherwise known as John Eleazar, mentioned directly in the Gospel of John in chapters 11 and 12 but suddenly disappears. And out of nowhere in chapter 13, we first hear the title of another disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. With enough evidence in the scriptures, we can and should change our position of belief. In this case, the evidence that I built within the scriptures themselves led me to the position that it was not the Apostle John, which was enough to shift my perspective on who it could be. Some may say, well, why does that matter? Here's why I think it matters. If you approach the Gospel of John with the idea that it was the Apostle John, then as you read it, you will get undertones about his character along the way, believing that this son of thunder, ready to call down fire from heaven to consume his enemy, ultimately turns out to be the most intimate disciple of Jesus. This will lead to sermon after sermon in regard to that. And I've heard these sermons. The man that was mean that suddenly had love <laughs> We've all heard it. So, if it's not the Apostle John and it's someone else, then how do we reconcile that? 
Now, my message today isn't in regard to that subject, but it is similar in nature. Today, I'd like to speculate on what was happening in real time to several individuals on the day of Christ's crucifixion. This event in history and the Lord's resurrection changed our world. As I've told Andy, our non-theist, determinist fellow cast member, on numerous occasions, it changed the world and it had lasting effects that even affected his life, to which he agrees, because he must. It's reality, especially to an American, where for over 200 years, Christianity has been the main religion that became the foundation of our society. Today, I would like you to go on a journey with me. This journey may seem a bit puzzling at first, because we will be going inside the minds of some of the people the scriptures tell us that were involved with the crucifixion, as well as those that it affected that day. We're going to leap from one mind to another. For example, we may be looking at people through the eyes of Jesus, then we'll leap into the mind of a thief hanging on a cross. My hope is that you will see something that you've never seen before, and that by switching perspectives that you will be edified and blessed. Rather than having church history as our databank, we will use the scriptures and our imaginations to try and find the actual undertones we were meant to utilize. I've heard people call the Bible the living word. I believe that Jesus Christ is the living word. I do, however, believe the Bible we use today was inspired and breathed out by God to the people he chose to reveal himself in the written word. Our journey begins in the mind of a murderer. He was a prisoner of the Romans for being a part of a violent uprising. His name is Barabbas, and today is his execution day. Now, it's important to understand that dying for a cause against the enemy occupiers Rome was considered an honor to them. And although the Bible doesn't specifically say that he was a zealot, it does say that he was a Jewish rebel and a notorious prisoner for causing a murder during a revolt. For all intents and purposes, he was zealous for revolting against the Romans. He took the law in his own hands. He was against the oppressors of his people. Even the Jews, who were not a part of the zealots, understood that although these rebels were always stirring up trouble with the Romans, which could cause severe backlash to the citizens of Israel, knew they had good reason for responding the way that they did. And perhaps they could have been a bit more diplomatic in their approach, but when diplomacy fails due to the rules being stacked against them, there will be some among them that simply won't take no for an answer. And Barabbas was obviously one of those types that had been through enough and fought back. A rebel is going to take the opportunity to act as a vigilante, understanding that they may lose their life in the process. They knew the stakes. To them, this was freedom from oppression in life and in death. For them, this would be an honorable death. Jesus himself selected a zealot named Simon as one of his own disciples. To be clear, though, this doesn't mean that Simon remained a zealot. He didn't. It's my belief that Simon the zealot wasn't the one among the disciples who saw violence as an answer anymore. Jesus has a way of turning people inside out. When we read about Jesus' capture the night before the crucifixion, it wasn't Simon the Zealot who would draw the sword and cut the ear off of Malchus, but it was Simon Peter, a fisherman. The morning of Barabbas' execution was a busy one. The Roman governor Pilate had been approached by the elders, the scribes, and the whole council of Israel in Jerusalem with a bound and exhausted Jesus to bring charges against him. Pilate 
who never found fault in Jesus, tried to persuade them to take advantage of this interesting thing he did once a year for them. The release of a single prisoner on the day of preparation before their Passover celebration. Now, it's safe to say that Pilate had already condemned Barabbas to death by crucifixion because he and two other thieves were on the Roman killing machine's docket for the day. So, if we understand the scriptures correctly, only two people would have been crucified that day. Three were scheduled to die, but one of them could have been released by Pilate, leaving two. However, Jesus was put in that mix that day. So now there were four prisoners standing in front of the crowd with Pilate on the judgment seat. Barabbas is standing in the lineup, along with Barabbas with the two other thieves. And we know them as the one thief who called on Jesus to save them all from their horrible deaths. And the other called on him to remember him when Jesus came into his kingdom, acknowledging his guilt. And the Bible never gives us their names. As a quick side note, church history does give us names for these men. According to church tradition, the penitent thief was called Dismas, and today the Catholic Church calls him Saint Dismas. If you've ever heard of San Dismas, California, that is that town's namesake. The other unrepentant thief's name was Justus. Now, since the Bible doesn't give them a name, today I will stick to the way in which it names them, the thief on the left and the thief on the right. And although this is pure speculation, and I love to speculate, I imagine that as Barabbas is standing there before the crowd and Pilate, that there was a thief to his left and to his right. God does this to me a lot. I see these things repeating over and over. I just see that. I speculate. It's not Bible, but it's me. What matters the most, though, to Barabbas in this very moment is if this other man, Jesus, who the chief priests say called himself their king, was going to be set free or not. That's the most important thing to Barabbas. I want you to imagine what it must have been like to have been condemned to die. Some people handle that kind of news better than others. And I would say that of the three criminals standing there, that Barabbas was more likely to be ready to die for honor. The other two were thieves, and you know the type. The ones who slink around, trying not to get caught, taking things that don't belong to them. They may have stolen something out of necessity, or their intentions could have been from a pure malicious intent to get a quick and easy bump up in life. We just don't know. I do know that at this moment, the other two thieves are not ready to die. They want a way out. And we know this because of one of the thieves later in the day will call on Jesus to save his life and get him off the cross. That tells me what I need to know. Something else I know is that at this point on their judgment day, and remember, this is their judgment day, that none of the three criminals were penitent they were all defiant. The thieves were afraid, but defiant. I believe that Barabbas was just defiant. Now, I believe this because of what Bible says about Barabbas' character and how it tells us how the thieves treated Jesus while he was on the cross early in the day. Mark 15, 7 states, his character, oh, I'm sorry, and the one named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the rebels who had committed murder in the revolt. Mark 15, 7 his character was one of insurrection at any cost. He was part of a rebellious group that commits murder. It's obvious that he's defiant. But in regard to the thieves, Mark 15:32 states, let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. And notice this, those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. 
Even though these men were crucified themselves, they were still throwing insults at the Lord. And it's my opinion that they were afraid and anxiety-ridden, but show their emotions by lashing out in anger. And that isn't a stretch of my imagination, nor should it be of yours. I'm sure you know people who act that way today. But it, did, it, did it ever occur to you <clears throat> that one of the other two thieves could have been released that day? It was a strange custom, no doubt, that Pontius Pilate would release a prisoner. But I'm not surprised. The Romans were a sadistic bunch and would most likely kill a released prisoner rather than tie themselves up with further legal proceedings. I'm just speculating here. Yet all of these men were going to be executed that day. And we must remember this. They were all condemned to die. Standing before Pilate, these men would have seen Jesus being called King of the Jews by Pilate himself. And I can only imagine what Barabbas' thoughts were like when he suddenly heard his name being chanted among the crowd. Think about it. You're standing there condemned to die, and suddenly you hear, Give us Barabbas! Release to us Barabbas! Can you imagine the hope you would feel? Like, yeah! Get me out of here, right? What was he thinking? Can you imagine what it must have felt like to Barabbas when Pilate kept arguing on Jesus' behalf? So it's possible he could get released. The crowd screaming, he was like, but what about this guy? What about the... He's like, not that guy. What about me, right? These are the things that are going on in the minds of the people that are standing there. Am I going to die on a cross today? Or am I going to get out of this hellish prison and go back home to my family? Most likely, those who knew Barabbas were in the crowd yelling on his behalf. I would assume that. And this must have been a torturous moment for Barabbas. Sometimes we skip over these characters because we focus so much on the Lord. But remember, the Holy Spirit wrote this book, and that man's name was mentioned. We need to spend time and try to think what it would be like to be these men that encountered the Lord Jesus. Barabbas has something that I don't. He got to see him, but I will one day. I think it was for the other two thieves as well. I think it was torturous. They all had to watch all of this unfold. And I'm curious if you've ever thought about this. I can only imagine that envy welled up inside the other two. Think about it. As they heard Pilate debating the chief priests and elders over the choice of Barabbas and Jesus, they weren't even a part of the conversation. Barabbas was a murderer. Jesus supposedly claimed to be the rightful king, and all they had ever done was steal. Surely that should bring a lesser charge, right? Then finally the choice is made. Barabbas would be released. Jesus would be condemned. Here is where I want to change perspectives and jump into the mind of another man. At this very moment in our story, there is a disciple at work trying to undo what he'd done to Jesus. Judas Iscariot is suddenly feeling remorse about what he'd done. And the Gospel of Matthew tells us, Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? You, see, you shall see to it yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and left. And he went away and hanged himself. Matthew 27, 1 through 8. Notice how it says, then when Judas saw that he was condemned, <clears throat> excuse me, 
This means that as Barabbas is being released, the other two thieves and Jesus are being led away to Golgotha, that Judas suddenly has a crisis of conscience. So why now? Why does Judas have a sudden change of heart? Why not the night before? What I'm about to say is simply putting something into the text that isn't there. Okay, So keep in mind that this is not biblical, but it's speculative on my part. I see something in the text that seems plausible. Judas, in my opinion, was playing a political move, and it failed. I personally think he was gambling on Jesus' release, and I think he had enough insight into the situation that ultimately Jesus wouldn't have to die at all. This, Give me a moment, <laughs> and if you don't believe me, you can send an email to Andy Bishop, not me. <laughs> this... The scriptures clearly teach that the Lord Jesus was in the line of David. And we know that today Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, that he sits on the throne of David forever. And being on this side of the crucifixion and resurrection, it's easy for us to place it in its correct position for our spiritual reality today. However, during the day of the crucifixion, he was not on the throne. The Bible tells us that he was the rightful heir to the throne of David. But we know that King Herod, or Herod Antipas, was on that throne. King Herod was not the rightful heir. He was placed there by Rome and was a puppet king. And I think Judas Iscariot is still trying to make a play for that throne. Again, I'm speculating. Just go with me here. If he could get Jesus in the right place at the right time, there still could be a chance for him to get the throne. The Bible does not tell us this but it does give us hints at it being plausible. In Judas's mind, being in power with the Messiah was something to be valued. It was on the minds of some of the other disciples for sure. We know this due to the mother of James and John wanting her sons to be on the right and left hand of Jesus in the kingdom. This caused a rift among the disciples, and that is biblical. We also know that Jesus wasn't taking the throne by force. And force and violence is all that those people knew. It's really all we know. Let's read a couple of verses from Matthew 20 in regard to power. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you desire? She said to him, say that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine shall sit, one at your right and one at your left. But Jesus replied, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, We are able. He said to him, to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit at my right and at my left is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And after hearing this, the other ten disciples became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles domineer over them, and those in high position exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wants to become prominent among you shall be your servant, and whoever desires to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 20-28. So from this earlier account, Judas is among the other 10 disciples that got indignant with James and John for trying to get above them. However, the Lord Jesus gave them the way in which the principles of his kingdom would work. 
If you want to be considered great in his kingdom, then you must become the greater servant. This is not how the world that Judas was living in at the time worked. In fact, it's not how the world works right now. But it does in the kingdom if you are a subject to King Jesus. So let me try and give some insight into why I believe this move by Judas Iscariot was possibly political. I think that because of what Judas had been experiencing during his time in the ministry, that he wanted to establish Jesus as king in the world right then. And for good reason. The issue is that his plans were not the Lord's plans. With Jesus, it's always about the Father's timing. So let's go earlier in Jesus' ministry when Judas is one of the initial 12 disciples who were given power by Jesus to cast out demons and heal the sick. The Bible doesn't tell us that Judas was an exception to the other disciples and did not have this power. So rather, he is named among them and he absolutely was given this ability. So let me read a few more verses from the Gospel of Matthew to establish this. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every sickness. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, and James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who also betrayed him. Matthew 10, 1 through 4. So notice that. Judas Iscariot is a believer. He's a chosen disciple and was given the same power as the other disciples. If you put yourself in the mind of Judas at this early stage of his life, he is now seeing things he never thought possible. It's one thing to watch the Lord Jesus perform these things. It's another when it's you performing these things. Can you imagine being given the power to heal every disease and every sickness? I'd touch your ear, Kathy. Thank you. I would. If I had the ability to do that, I would. I would. Judas had that power. Don't forget that. He had that power. To think that Judas was the betrayer at the beginning of Christ's ministry would be a mistake. However, the Gospels put it right in there at the beginning. The one who also betrayed him. It's easy to read those words and cast them in a negative light as you read the rest. But that, whoops, what did I do? Of course I would do that. Let me go back. How do I get this down? Here we go. I'm sorry. Here we go. <clears throat> the Gospels put it right in the beginning, right? You hear that. He's the betrayer. So when you read that, from there on out, it sort of casts a negative light on his character, which it should. Correct? Yeah. Because you know, you hear it. He's the betrayer. Okay, so every time I see Judas Iscariot, I'm going to be like, oh, that's the guy. He's the betrayer. But see, that's, uh, that's actually our problem. It's not the Bible's problem. It tells us from the point of view after the fact. And what I'm trying to see is where his mind is at that time. We have to shift our paradigm, and he wasn't a betrayer in the beginning. He has certain qualities within him that will ultimately come out. But we must remember, it wasn't just on his own accord. We know that on different occasions, Satan enters into him. The Lord Jesus gives him certain responsibilities that are actually contrary to his nature. 
So let's dig a little deeper into the character of this man and what he was taught during Jesus' ministry. The Lord Jesus taught his disciples, and that includes Judas Iscariot in his Sermon on the Mount. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Matthew 6, 19 through 24. So do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where thieves break in and steal. Rather, store up treasures in heaven where it is safely kept from the effects of this world. I've never, uh, other than through spirituality, I just have to tell you, think about that for a moment. How do you invest in a bank spiritually somewhere? That's what he's saying. So that takes, there's something going on here, and I don't think that Judas understands it. It's one way or the other, Judas. You can either serve money or you can serve God. You cannot serve both. And it's quite possible, I think, that for a brief period of time that Judas actually tried to deny himself the temptation of riches and power on this earth. But ultimately, he wanted the treasures that the earth had to offer over what Jesus was telling him was going to be riches in his kingdom. Serve God and him alone. Be a servant to others. Deny yourself here in this world. Everything else must go. Put down the money, pick up a cross, and follow me. That's the words that the Lord used. So make no mistake, when it comes to the crucifixion, everything about the crucifixion narrative is about wealth and power to those who want to rule the earth, its people, and its treasures. They just didn't know the Lord's plans. The depravity of man is still ever-present. There are lots of people, like Judas, still going around behind the scenes trying to make quick deals for a good cause or to gain power. I will not say anything political here, but whew, my goodness. It's still going on, folks. It has been. And if you look hard enough, you may even see this type of action in yourself. I have. I've seen it in myself. I've tried to do good things, and they weren't. If you take an ethics class today, you can learn all about tough decisions that have to be made for the greater good. But I must warn you all, they are not the ethics of our Lord Jesus Christ. That was the ethic of the high priest that sentenced Jesus to death with his own lips. And that was the ethic of Pontius Pilate trying to keep the peace. So I want to show you one more flaw in the character of Judas Iscariot that I believe is very telling in regard to my idea about him making a political move on his own authority. And let's read how Judas was already acting a few days earlier. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a dinner there, and Martha was serving, and Lazarus one of the, was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very expensive perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, 
one of his disciples, the one who intended to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the proceeds given to poor people? Now he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he kept the money box, he used to steal from what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. John 12, 1-8. Something I'd really like to point out here is that Jesus is speaking directly to Judas Iscariot. When he rebukes Judas for his comments, notice that Judas is hearing the Lord tell him, You, you will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Consider this lesson to be for Judas particularly based on his position within the group. Why? Because he's the treasurer. And he is thinking in regard to the proper usage for the money for their cause. He's just thinking wrong. Jesus is telling him that where his treasure is, so is his heart. That is why the poor will always be with him. Because he, Judas, will not always have Jesus. At least not with that kind of thinking. And Judas needed to shift his thinking to be in line with Jesus' thinking and the correct setup of the treasury in the kingdom and in the age to come. He was thinking about then. He wasn't thinking about what was to come. So just a few days before the crucifixion, the Bible states that he intended to betray him. He was planning to make this move for a while. It also tells us that he was in charge of the money box, like I said being the treasurer of the ministry, but that he was a thief and that he stole from the ministry. So somewhere along the line, he had been considering this move and the writer of John's gospel had deduced that this had already been in play before this particular event where Mary anoints Jesus for his burial. The writer also says he didn't care about the poor. Judas Iscariot is a politically savvy thief that makes his moves when the timing works for him. Remember, when Jesus told all the disciples at the Last Supper that one of them would betray him, I want you to notice the disciples looked at one another astonished. We learned some key things about Judas in the Gospel of John chapter 13. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. John 13, 2. When Jesus had said these things, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. John 13, 21 through 22. Notice that. Notice that they were all at a loss to know which one he was speaking of. At that moment, they simply just didn't know. And it wouldn't be until much later when Peter would announce to the disciples that Judas Iscariot was the one who betrayed the Lord. But when they were together, they had no clue that tells you something about Judas's capability and what he was planning. Which brings me to a, my few last points here about Judas Iscariot. And I've been speculating, and I know it's, it's difficult, but just go a little deeper with me. I think Judas's plan technically could and should have worked. I think that he knew more than we give him credit for, and I think he was a schemer and hid his own agenda from the disciples for three and a half years. The idea that he could turn over Jesus to the rulers who had absolutely no power of themselves to put him to death due to Rome's influence and power most likely knew that he would be turned over to Pontius Pilate. I also think he knew about the custom of setting a prisoner free on this particular day. It was a custom that Pontius Pilate had been doing. And I think this is... I I think this way simply because of the words when he saw that Jesus was condemned, 
Then he became remorseful. Up until that point, I think he thinks it's working. He's got, now's the stage is set. Do you not want me to set free the king of the Jews? What if, he must have thought in his mind that Pontius Pilate, being the sadistic Roman that he was, would have turned the innocent man loose. That's what I think. But I don't think he just felt sad about what he'd done. I simply just think that the plan failed. The fact that Jesus was not set free and a murderer was, is the shock to Judas's conscience. So think about it. Why that sudden change of heart? He'd already betrayed him the night before, but now he has this remorse. He's playing a dangerous game, and I believe his intentions were to get Jesus whipped and released because he knew that Jesus was innocent. Jesus should have been the one to be set free that day, and there's only one reason that he wasn't. He was destined to die, and God ordained it. That's the only reason, and I thank God daily for that because I have eternal life today because of it. A few final thoughts about this man. Keep in mind that after Satan had entered him, that he left the Last Supper. And I want you to consider what Judas did not hear, that the other disciples did that final night. Jesus was going to prepare a place in his father's house for his disciples. Judas didn't hear that. Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and was the only way to the Father. Judas didn't hear that. Jesus was going to send the Holy Spirit to them. He had no clue. Jesus was the vine and they were the branches. He was, but he's not anymore. And Jesus commanded them to love one another even as he had loved them. He had already seen Jesus serve and give everything that he ever had. Love others like I love you. He didn't hear that. Let's move on to our next perspectives on the crucifixion. And I say perspectives because there are two men that will make a decision on this day that will change their lives forever. These two men have been following the teachings of the Lord Jesus in secret. They are also behind the scenes. They are members of the Sanhedrin, the rulers of the Jews who had been a part of the plot to kill Jesus. And to be in the positions they are in tells us all we need to know about their ideas on wealth and power. Both of these men had had wealth and power and their lives had been characterized by it. That is, until they heard about Jesus. Today, the crucifixion day is the preparation day for the Jews, and it's the day before the high Sabbath. They have a lot of responsibilities to carry out. Today, these two men are going to make a decision to let all of that wealth and power go. To these two, there is something far more important. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were secret disciples. And we know this because the scriptures tell us. And today, as Jesus is condemned, they are faced with some serious decisions. Do they continue to hide themselves from their peers, or do they try to do something for the Lord that will ultimately expose them? There were things that they could be doing on this day, the preparation day, and the Bible tells us that both of them do actually make preparations, just not according to the old covenant traditions. When we read the scripture account of the crucifixion and follow the timeline, it almost seems that these men made this decision to come forward at the very last second, but I don't see it that way. Because you can't prepare a tomb in five minutes, nor can you gather 75 to 100 pounds of burial spices. The moment had come for these two men to reveal the truth about who they thought Jesus was. And as Jesus is carrying his cross with the other two thieves, passing by the women in the streets that are wailing for him, 
the preparations have begun. Joseph and Nicodemus will begin to give orders and make arrangements. I know it has to start earlier in the day. It doesn't happen at the last second. It can't. The body of the Lord Jesus cannot stay on the cross according to their own customs, and they know this. There is no one else today that can do what they can do. So God has ordained this moment in their lives, and they believe Jesus was who he said he was. And by the end of this day, Joseph will gather enough courage to go before Pilate and request the body of our Lord. Nicodemus, on the other hand, will have a moment that the Lord Jesus had told him would happen the night they first met. Let's not forget what I said earlier. You can serve wealth or you can serve God. You cannot serve both. You couldn't when Jesus first uttered that lesson to his disciples, and you still can't today. But for now, we'll leave these two men who are working behind the scenes and move on to another man whose life will change for being what he may have thought was the wrong place at the wrong time, for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And those of us who know him from the scriptures know that he actually was in the right place at the right time. We don't know much about this man because he's only mentioned in three verses. Simon of Cyrene had just come into the city of Jerusalem from the country. And when you are traveling in a Roman-occupied country, you have to live according to their laws. And one of those laws is mentioned by the Lord Jesus in one of his teachings. So let's look at that. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not show opposition against an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other toward him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too, and give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Matthew 5, 38-42. Notice that. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. What I'm sure most of you here know, but some may not, is that in the ancient Roman world, a soldier could force anyone 12 years or older to carry his gear for a mile. And you could be simply minding your own business when suddenly a soldier could come up to you, make you stop what you're doing, and suddenly you find yourself carrying a burden for them. And you're now a mile away from where you were, and you're exhausted. So you'd have to make your way back to where you started, right? Of course, you could be stopped by another soldier and have to go another mile somewhere else. And if you were having a really bad day, and the soldiers had felt like toying with you, you could spend the rest of your day carrying their gear to and fro with no end in sight. The Lord Jesus taught that resisting those who want to do evil to you can be met in a very w- different way than, say, someone like Barabbas would have handled it. The difference is loving your enemy, and the only resistance is you, that you show is resisting the hate that you feel about those people in your heart. However, in this situation, Simon of Cyrene isn't mentioned as a follower of Jesus. In fact, it seems that he was just an unlucky bystander on this particular day. What I do know about this man is that where he came from has a history with the Jews and the Greeks. Simon's hometown of Cyrene was a Greek city in the province of Cyrenaica in eastern Libya in northern Africa. And it had a Jewish community where 100,000 Judean Jews had been forced to settle during the reign of Ptolemy Soter about 300 years before the birth of Jesus. And these Cyrenian Jews also had a synagogue in Jerusalem where many went for annual feasts. We also know that later, Cyrene would become an early center for Christianity. I think the scriptures give us enough information to deduce not only why Simon of Cyrene was in Jerusalem, but I believe it also tells us why his hometown would become an early place for Christianity. 
Simon was in the city for one of two reasons. One, he was there to deliver something of importance for the other Jews and their preparations to make some money, or he was there to celebrate along with thousands and thousands of other Jews who were there to do their due to the Passover, and I think it was for the latter. He had just come in from the country and was on his way to begin preparations, and I also believe that the Gospel of Mark gives us an interesting insight into his future after the single event in Simon's life. And they compelled a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene. And notice in parentheses, the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross, Mark 15, 21. Notice that. The Gospel of Mark points out two names. And Simon, Simon's sons, Alexander and Rufus, and when considering audience relevance of this gospel, thank you, Pastor Curtis, for teaching me audience relevance years ago. I'm so thankful for it. Those who read this book in the first century are going to know these names. We don't, but they did. So, and I think that that's a, I think it's a fair assessment to think that these young men were part of spreading the gospel early on. I can't say that, but I think it's fair to say, and it's not proof. But I want to point out later in the scriptures, we hear about another man helping the cause of Christ. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks as well, preaching the good news of the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Acts 11, 19-21. So we see here mention of Cyrene, sending men that preached the good news of the Lord Jesus to Antioch, but not just preaching to Jews alone. So, although this does not prove that it was Simon or his sons, but I think it could be, I have one other key verse that leads me to what I consider to be strong proof that what happened to Simon of Serene that day had a lasting effect on not only him, but also on his family. Notice in Romans 16, greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Now, as you can see, the name Rufus shows up later in the letter written by Paul, but, and this could be the same Rufus that Mark had mentioned as the son of Simon of Cyrene. And it's my opinion that this particular event in Simon of Cyrene's life would have a lasting impact on him and his entire family. Again, I'm speculating, right? But with that in mind, consider this. Simon is walking into the city, planning to celebrate, when suddenly, in this terrible, awful scene that he comes across, and he sees Jesus with two other men dragging these hard big wooden crosses through the streets. And imagine the roars of the mob around him and the yelling of the Roman guards at the prisoners. Then suddenly, you have to pick up one of these men's crosses. And it's bloody. And you see this man with a whipped back and a crown of thorns and bloody garments. For those of us who have encountered the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we know what it's like to meet Jesus for the first time. You are either compelled to follow him or you're not. Simon was compelled against his own will to carry this cross. And one last thing I'd like to mention about Simon of Serene is this. The Gospel of John never mentions him. The Gospel of John states that Jesus carries his own cross. 
And I've had many atheists say to me that this is a contradiction. Isn't it amazing how quickly people will try and discount the scriptures? And rather than trying to deduce why, they just simply close the door on its accuracy and authority. To me, it's really simple. It tells me about those who are trying to stay near to our Lord Jesus as he walks on his way to Golgotha. There are people trying to stay with him, but they can't. It gives me a picture of the struggle that they were going through just to be near the Lord. And can you imagine trying to get through that throng of people hearing crucify him, crucify him. If we all do what Pastor Curtis says over and over to us, read your Bible, people, then you'll get this point that I'm about to make. At the end of the Gospel of John, listen to this. This is the disciple who was testifying about these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. But there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I expect that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John 21, 21 through 22. The writer of the Gospel of John simply did not witness Simon of Cyrene carrying the cross. He didn't put it in his Gospel because he was giving his eyewitness account of what he saw. The disciple whom Jesus loved, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, were trying to keep up with this grotesque scene. And there are some things that they just did not see or hear. What we do know is that they finally make it to Golgotha and are with our Lord. We also know that every other disciple had scattered at this point. All of them. The Bible says all of them had scattered, except the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who wrote this very gospel. But right now, I want to shift to another perspective. So this perspective is specifically to the crucifixion. And you may or may not have thought of this before, but I hope that you'll begin to see what I'm seeing. As we see the effect that the Lord has on us in our daily lives, in our present time, I want to shed some light on specific details that lie underneath the crucifixion narrative. The Gospels each have their own perspective on the crucifixion. Some have detail that others leave out. When we put them together, we can get a clearer picture of everything that happened that day. Earlier I had stated that Barabbas and the other two thieves were defiant at the beginning of the day. And we know that both thieves continued to insult the Lord Jesus when they were first put on their crosses. So let's look at that again. At that time, two rebels were being crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were speaking abusively to him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He is trusted in God. Let God rescue him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the rebels who had been crucified with him were also insulting him in the same way. Matthew 27, 38 through 44. What we learn is that these two men remained defiant and continued ridiculing the Lord even after they'd been put on their crosses. And for those of us who know the scriptures, we know that one thief had a very different outcome in regard to the relationship with Jesus. So now I want to show you to the best of my ability how it happened. There are a few phrases that one thief will hear from those who pass by and mock the Lord, and he'll take them to heart, but he'll take them in a negative way. 
So let's go back to what we just read and listen to these words. Those passing by were speaking abusively to him. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. He saved others. Let him now come down from the cross. I want you to notice that the unrepentant thief, what he'll say to the Lord, and it is going to sound similar in nature to what you just heard from the chief priests and elders that walked by. And it's very telling about the condition of this man's thoughts and heart in regard to his situation. Not only hasn't he changed, but now he's doubling down on his chances of survival. It's a strange thought. But one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He's looking for a different kind of salvation. Luke 23:39. Notice this. We see this thief mimicking exactly what he'd heard from those who sought to insult and abuse the Lord. And although the Bible is clear that both of them were insulting Jesus earlier, at this point, the other thief suddenly has a change of heart. So we can learn something else about these two men. So far, all of the other perspectives we've taken are unique, are unique into the, to their uh, individual circumstances in relationship to Jesus. However, the perspectives of the thieves are similar in this way. It's one thing to observe a crucifixion, but it's vastly different when your perspective is from a cross of your own. So for the thief who wants Jesus to save him from his punishment and death, he's at the end of the line. This is his last hope. His hope was in this world, not the one to come. And this is his typical behavior, and it's really incredibly similar to Judas Iscariot. This situation has not changed him, though. He is not penitent and certainly not remorseful for what he had done. Rather, he's grasping at straws. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been at the end of your rope and you just start grasping for whatever's around you? Thieves especially know their surroundings and they know how to manipulate others just to get what they want. So what he is saying is exactly what he's heard these other men say. And we have no idea how he became a thief. We just know that something in his life led him to exactly where he is on this particular day. So with some quick thinking, he mimics what he's heard and hopes that something might change his situation. And notice that Jesus does not respond to him. He does not respond to that type of talk. But the other thief did respond to him. Let's look at what he says. But the other, the other responded and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our crimes. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Luke 23, 40-42. I want you to remember that earlier in the day, he was insulting Jesus on that cross, but suddenly he's saying this. So what's happening? But before we get into that, did it ever occur to you that these thieves actually knew one another? Not only do I believe that they knew each other, I actually think that they did their crimes together. This penitent thief has explained so much in his rebuke. Notice, do you not even fear God? So this tells us that the penitent thief does fear God. The reckoning has come to his mind. Not the other one, but the reckoning has come. He knows that he was guilty. He knows he deserved the punishment that he was receiving, and he wasn't trying to slink around and hide anymore. But did you notice the we in his rebuke? How could he say that unless he knew something about the other thief? 
He knew that he himself was guilty, but he knew that the other thief was guilty too. Very seldom, when you have a duo, a couple of thieves working together, do they come out as being considered equal. I think it's safe to say that the defiant thief most likely was the ringleader of these two. And the penitent thief makes it very clear that he not only feared God, which is the beginning of wisdom, but he also was sorry for what he'd done. He had observed the continuous abuse of Jesus that day, and suddenly he sees Jesus for who he truly was, the rightful heir to David's throne. He was the king that was promised. And I want to point out one more thing about that this penitent thief had saw. But this man has done nothing wrong. So what changed? Earlier, he was mimicking and he was insulting. So suddenly something has changed. How is it that this man suddenly saw something he didn't see earlier that day? Is it a loss of blood? Did the suffering go to his head? Did he suddenly just accept his fate? I don't think that's what's going on at all. I think that the father is at work right here in the midst of them. I think that this man saw the light of the world, and there is only one way that that can happen. Here you go, Calvinist. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. John 6, 44 through 45. Check this out. I believe that this is the final gift from the Father to His Son prior to His death. Remember in the garden when He prayed, the Father had given Him His disciples, those that believe in Him. He's given them to Him. This is the final gift before He dies. And I believe that He did it for Jesus' sake. This thief was one of those that was given as a gift, and Jesus was able to see and hear this man crucified alongside Him call Him a king. Imagine, we love to think of Christ as Superman, but he was a human being. He was suffering, he was bleeding, and he was doing it for you, and he was doing it for me, and he was doing it for that man right beside him. So as he's laying there after being ridiculed, not laying there, but hanging there, suffering, suddenly in our Lord's ears, he got to hear, remember me when you come into your kingdom, I'm about to cry. Just thinking about what he's doing for him. He gives this thief the truth. And I believe he gives it to him right on time. And Jesus heard it. I want to switch to another perspective, though, and we'll come back to this penitent thief. Although there are several women who are mentioned in the Scriptures at the foot of the cross, I'm not going to talk about the perspective of Mary Magdalene or Mary the mother of Jesus. Today I want to look from the perspective of a woman mentioned being there but we really don't discuss that much in regard to the crucifixion. The mother of the sons of Zebedee was looking at the crucifixion scene from a distance. So let's read that portion of scripture. And many women were there watching from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while caring for him. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, Matthew 27, 55 through 56. The reason I bring her up is due to something she would remember. She will remember this from a conversation that she had had with the Lord Jesus. 
And it's the one that I referenced earlier when I brought up that the other ten disciples were indignant toward her sons, James and John, for asking the Lord for a special favor. Let's revisit and reread it. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you desire? She said to him, say that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine shall sit, one at your right and one at your left. But Jesus replied, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit at my right and at my left is not mine to give but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. When Jesus asked them if they were able to drink from the same cup, they responded, we are able. The cup Jesus was talking about is what the mother of the son of Zebedee is watching right now. That is the cup. The cup was the one that Jesus had asked the Father the night before to let pass from him. Did you know that? He asked the Lord to let the cup pass from him. And aren't you glad that he did what the Father said? I am. So, we know the answer that he received from the Father. No, you must drink. You must drink from the cup of God's wrath upon sin. And the mother of the apostle James and John had asked if her sons could sit at the right and left. And I think she'd be thankful that he's that they're not on the left and right of him right now, don't you? As all of these things are unfolding around Golgotha, something is about to happen that no one expected. Darkness. The Bible says that from the sixth hour of the day to the ninth hour, that the sun ceased shining and darkness came over the land. And now I've heard many say that this is spiritual darkness, and it may be. However, I see it as literal darkness. And this darkness, or as I like to say, the absence of light, would begin to show us the transaction that is taking place. The sins of the world are upon our Lord, and He is enduring them all. It is during this three-hour period that those around the crucifixion will begin to become unsettled. The Lord Jesus says nothing at all during this time. But the Bible states that at the ninth hour, He speaks these words. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. The Lord cries out with a loud voice. The Son has been forsaken. Yet most of us know that this is a direct quote from Psalm 22, a messianic psalm that describes this event in specific detail. However, I don't want us to forget that he actually said these words. He wasn't just saying them, he meant them. He had, in fact, been forsaken for our sake, and he is finishing the work on the cross. But I want to stop here and switch perspectives, and I want to think about what could be going through the mind of the penitent thief at this very moment. Three hours earlier, he saw Jesus as a king, remember? Three hours earlier, he had a fear of God that the other thief didn't. What do you think this man was thinking when he heard his king crying out, Why have you forsaken me, God? You think something entered his mind? Do you think it caused him to wonder if he put his faith in the wrong man? It seems like the darkness would be unsettling and suggests something supernatural is happening. But to hear this, why have you forsaken me, God? The Bible doesn't say anything about the penitent thief or what he was thinking. I do know this. 
If one thief could talk to the other and Jesus cried out with a loud voice, then that would definitely be something he heard loud and clear. And right after this, our Lord would say, I thirst. It is finished. And then, Father, into thine hands I commend my spirit and would give up his spirit in that very moment. And I can only imagine what was going through the mind of the penitent thief. And perhaps I can encourage you by saying this. The father did not leave that penitent thief to question his choices that day. Not at all. I say this because the father shows up again in the midst of his people right after Jesus dies. This is wild. I love it. The father will give this penitent thief another voice to calm his own nerves, to give him hope, to show him that he had been right about Jesus. Jesus Jesus truly had done nothing wrong. He really did see a king that day. He had put his trust in the Holy Son of God. So let's switch perspective to see where these encouraging words could come from. A centurion that was part of the Roman killing machine that day, like many other days, I'm sure, had a sudden realization. So much so that he says something aloud that other eyewitnesses will attest to, including other guards that were with him that day. The scriptures say about the centurion, Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, This man was in fact innocent. That's Luke's account. Now as far as the centurion... Now, as for the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the other things that were happening, they became extremely frightened and said, truly, this was the son of God. That's Matthew's account. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him, remember, these thieves are in close proximity. He saw that he died in this way. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. That's in Mark's gospel. I've heard all kinds of different points of view on the centurion. I've heard some say that these centurions were spooked because of the natural occurrences, like the earthquake and the darkness, which made them quake inside as well. I've heard others say that the centurion recognized Jesus was in fact the Son of God. The Bible says what it says. If he called them Son of God and believed that he was innocent and was looking upon him, I believe the Father is giving him that information. That's what I believe. And I believe that he was doing it, and that penitent thief was able to hear it. And I think that it encouraged him. That's what I think. So, I want to change back to that penitent thief. In the moments following Jesus' death, his king's death, after hearing the cries of the Lord and suffering alongside him, these words will ring in his ears. This man was innocent. This man truly was the son of God. Have you ever had a moment like that in your life? Have you ever been very low and wondering what you're doing? Do you struggle as you suffer and wonder if you got it all wrong? But when you get a message of hope, it reinvigorates you? I have. And I think that the Father gave that gift to the penitent thief that day. That's my belief. I love to speculate that. I know what he's done for me. He knew that when he took his final breath, that the promise the Lord made him would be kept the same way that I stand on the promises given to me knowing that one day I will also take one final breath and I will be with my Lord. So before I come back to Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, I want for us to consider the lives of some many others others that day. Consider Zacchaeus, a hated tax collector that had been a thief of his own people. He's small in stature and heard of the Lord Jesus coming to his town. He climbs into a sycamore tree just so he could see the Lord. By the end of the day, Jesus said aloud, Today salvation has come to this household. But on this day, the day of the crucifixion, Zacchaeus will be making preparations. Guess what? His debts are going to be paid today. Consider Jairus, 
a ruler of the synagogue that in one desperate attempt to save his own daughter fought the crowds to get to the Lord. And on that day, he would be interrupted by a woman that had an issue of blood that stopped Jesus in his tracks. And as this woman lie there trembling on the ground, getting Jesus' attention, Jairus' servants would come and sadly tell him, it's too late. His daughter had died and there was no further reason to bother the Lord. But God, who is rich in mercy, would draw his son to stand up, to comfort Jairus, and to take him and raise his daughter from the dead. Today, Jairus and his wife and his very alive daughter will be making preparations to thank God for their deliverance. Their sins will be once and for all atoned for by a spotless lamb. And since I mentioned her, consider the woman with the issue of blood. For 12 years she had suffered. She had spent all of her money with no relief. And her last desperate attempt for help, she, being unclean, touched the hem of our Lord's garment, drawing the virtue from him, causing him to stop and ask his disciples who had touched him. And in that moment, her blood stopped flowing. She was healed. Today, on Preparation Day, this woman, who is now clean, will be able to go to synagogue and worship with her family and friends, unlike that decade plus that she couldn't. She'll be able to make preparations and will spend her time with others and not be alone as a castaway. Today, her sins are going to be atoned for by blood. Consider the leper, how daily as he walked would have to yell, unclean, unclean, if anyone approached him. The Lord healed him of his disease, giving him access to the priests. Today, he'll be making preparations, no longer alone or forced to live in a colony of lepers. His sins are going to be atoned for. I obviously cannot go into all the individual perspectives of those surrounding the crucifixion. We could have considered Pontius Pilate's wife, Pontius Pilate, Caiaphas, the high priest, the high priest's father-in-law, Annas, or the women lining the streets as Jesus was dragging his across on the way to Golgotha, but he told them not to weep for him. Time simply does not permit me to do so today, and with the time I have left, I just want to conclude this with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. These two men will be the last to see our Lord on the cross, and Joseph of Arimathea has made preparations for his own tomb to be ready to receive the body of the Lord. So now he has built up the courage to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus to be removed before sundown. Nicodemus has prepared spices for his burial. Now the time has come where they are standing there looking at the Lord crucified, whipped, bloody, and lifeless on the cross. I want to focus in on Nicodemus here. Let's go back to something that Jesus said to him on the night they first met. The Gospel of John records this instant excuse me, this intimate conversation that they had. And from the moment Nicodemus heard the words come from Jesus' lips that he must be born again, he was confused and unsure of what he was hearing. He simply didn't understand what Jesus was telling him. So let's jump into that conversation where Nicodemus has asked Jesus, how can these things be? Jesus will then go on to explain who the Son of Man is and why he came at this moment in history. You are the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you people do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes will have eternal life in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through Him. John 3, 10-17 The Lord Jesus Christ taught Nicodemus the perspective he should have in regard to the Son of Man in that crucifixion, high and lifted up, that the Son of Man would draw all men to Himself. And there isn't much to speculate in regard to that. That is exactly what happened, and it's exactly what is happening to Nicodemus right now. He is seeing the Son of God high and lifted up, just like Moses and that serpent, where they could be healed. Nicodemus is learning that lesson at this very moment. And you know what? It did to me many years ago, too. I, too, was drawn to him. And my hope is that you will be drawn to him as well, and that you will read the Scriptures for yourself that you will not only consider the application of the teachings we find in them for our lives, but also see the relevance of the audience that received these Gospels and letters. To put yourself in their world and consider the effects it had on them. At some point, speculation must give way to absolute truth found within the Holy Scriptures. To question and reason from the Scriptures is necessary for growth. However, within these pages are truths pinned down down by men, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We can reason, but ultimately, we must accept His words as the authority over everything else. This is why I stand with men like Pastor David Curtis. When the world says one thing, but the Scriptures say another, he holds firmly to the Scriptures. So I'm thankful to call him my friend and brother in Christ, and I'm also thankful that he and you all here at Berean, in this room and also online, allowed me to be here today. One of my favorite things to hear when I walk in this church with the Burroughs is when Pastor Curtis asks Cherry's husband Rodney from across the room, Hey, are you a preterist yet? It does my heart well to have both of these men in the same room kidding around with one another. And since some of my favorite speakers, like Jeff McCormick, you were first, Jeff, you know that, Bob Cruikshank, Mike Sullivan, and Pastor Curtis, always use quotes in their presentations, I thought I would end this talk with one. I can walk a long way with a man that puts his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, even if we disagree on certain things that come from the Bible. If you really think about it, if the Lord hadn't have saved me, I wouldn't be talking to you and anyone else about this anyway. All I know is that without him, I'm nothing. My friend Rodney Lewis said that. Thank you all for letting me be here. It means a lot. And uh, I hope that that blesses you and that you're encouraged by this. Sometimes it's hard to understand what's going on in our lives. And the Lord has helped us by showing us stories from the Word of other people that were just like us. A lot of times we feel far removed from them because it was so long ago, but people haven't changed. We're all the same. We just have more stuff to keep us busy. But we're really not that busy. We're just busy looking at stuff. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today as uh, we go on about our day, the first thing I want to do is give you thanks for allowing me to be here and God for giving me the ability to read your word and to understand it. God, thank you for allowing me to share it. I consider it an honor. God, I'd ask that you would be with those here at Berean Bible Church as well as Berean Bible Church online or anybody that's within earshot of this. 
that they would be able to look at the scriptures and they would be able to find you in them. And ultimately, God, you're the one that will draw them to them. I'm thankful for that, Lord. I'm thankful for my own salvation. I'm thankful for my family that I have here. So please be with us. Please be with those uh, as they travel today and be with those that are sick. I'm thankful for all that you do. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Do you want to take questions? Yeah. I actually got your fancy little questions thing that's moving there. Huh? I will if you want. I mean, I tried to. Yeah, I will. I tried to keep it. Boy, it took longer than I thought. It was an hour and seven minutes. Yes, sir. Well, comment. Thank you for the message and for making us go beyond the words and think about what's going on to the background of what was said. Make us think beyond the words. And the comment about the redemption of the thief on the cross, I, I agree with you as his last gift. I mean, thank Christ that's on the cross. He's been beaten, suffering. He's drained, and he thinks that he's been forsaken. And the Lord saying, "Here, here's my last gift to you." Yeah, I agree. I love that, and thank you yeah. for saying that. I, I can only imagine. I've never suffered like that, guys, ever. But to the Lord suffered in ways that we can't even begin to understand, and we forget that he was human, and he was, and so he had lost a lot of blood and he was enduring so much but then to be able to hear the words beside you when no one else around you I mean I can imagine the women were weeping and all of that was going on but to hear those words you're a king that had to be amazing that's right he saw that crown of thorns but it wasn't a crown of thorns anymore it wasn't the same kind of right. crown to him amen because the father does that for us you see him mm-hmm. yes sir um, I agree with you on that perspective about Judas uh, thinking Jesus would be made king, mm-hmm. um, or at least be released, because was it five days a week before when he came into Jerusalem, the people were just exclaiming Hosanna in the That's highest. That's right, they were. Um, they believed he was their Messiah. Yes. Of course, you know, expecting a, a geopolitical kingdom would be mm-hmm. ushered in. They didn't think of a, a spiritual kingdom, which the thief on the cross seemed to understand at the end there. Mm-hmm. But um, so it's so I agree with that perspective. Uh, my question is, is like how how would that work out for himself being a king? Like how would that play out if once he got released, Jesus got released, then what would happen to make Judas a king? Well, Judas wouldn't be king. I'm sorry. I was trying to say that he was trying to make Jesus a king. I'm mm-hmm. sorry if I okay. if I messed that up. I'm sorry. Um, what I think that Judas was doing, and, and this again is speculation, but the way that we define betrayal is different in regard to the biblical betrayal. Jesus is doing so, Jesus is doing something far different than any other human being or any other king ever had. He is taking us to the new age. He is bringing in and ushering in the new kingdom. And Judas simply just doesn't get that. Judas is still operating under the same rules that we all live by in the world. So I think what he's doing is he's making a move. That's what I'm thinking. And trying to make a quick 30 pieces of silver on the side. Now, it could be totally wrong, but I don't think that I am. I think that he sees this opportunity, much like those other disciples that wanted to be in power. I was just going to say, I've heard um, others speculate that because Jesus had done so many miracles, you know, when he was captured, maybe he would 
you know, do some kind miracle of miracle and make, be, make himself king or who knows what he was thinking. Right, and I think that he was, you know, Judas is trying to do it earthly ways instead of heavenly ways. He's trying to usher in this kingdom. He's forcing the hand, yes. Like I said, force and violence is all they know. So he's trying to push it through. I don't think he thinks Jesus is going to be completely killed. I don't think that's happening. I think he thinks he's going to get away with it. But then when that all happens, then Jesus is going to look back at Judas and be like, man, you're the man, you did it. But that's really not what's going on. And he was believing. When you begin to, to do that way with your mind, when it says that Satan enters into him, it's because of the way that he was thinking and the alignment that he was doing. He was doing the opposite of what the Lord wanted in the Lord's timing. That's my thought. Yes, sir. I think it's a great thing to be in a position to be able to, no matter, there's a lot of people in the world, there's, you know, there's millions of people in the world, and there's not one person that God created, I think, that has something, well, okay, but what about this situation? It's amazing how, to me, that God allowed His Son to know everybody's situation that they, they, they can even think or conjure up in their mind to put them on a, in, a, in, a, in an area that, well, what about this situation? He, to me, he know about every situation that anybody will ever have. Yes. And you can learn from that. Mm-hmm. And that's what I appreciate. That Amen. No You're right. Is, no one is excluded from their thing. A lot of similarities in other people. You know, like my problem might be similar to your problem or whatever, but it's not one thing he left out, it seemed like to me. That's right. You know, I agree. It's, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. Yes, sir. Here's a question from Doug in Richmond. Uh huh. Hello, Doug in Richmond. Are you one of the rich men north of Richmond? Yeah, no. <laughs> he's not north of Richmond. Oh, he's, he's, he's in, in Richmond. Richmond. Oh, very good. Very good. Doug. He says, How do you integrate personal speculation with biblical inerrancy? Integrate it. Well, let me put it to you this way. When I speculate, like I said at the end of the, the message here, at some point it has to give way. You can speculate, and I think speculation is great. You can reason with it. You can think about it. I like to think outside of the box, but at some point, you've got to stop. Yeah. That's right, and you have to you have to let. And the Bible has to rule out the speculation, right? So, what it did for me is it helped me to grow. If I had never have speculated, I never would have came to this church to start with. So the idea was, I'm going to learn. I want to understand. What do you mean the sun will be darkened with something from the Old Testament? I never thought of that, you know. So the more I began to think outside the box, the more it led me to read more and more and more to solidify my belief rather than continue to speculate. Because we always joke on our podcast, we never seem to resolve anything because we're always talking from different perspectives. But I think that that's good. We want to show people that you should be able to talk to one another and you should be able to speculate and think. But ultimately, Christ is the Son of God and He is the Savior of mankind, you can't speculate on that. That's the end. That's where we, that's where it ends. Well, I think what's important is you made it very clear. I'm speculating. That's right. And I think we can do that all day as long as we're making that clear. That's right. I'm speculating. Well, Doug also says this. Your guest has awesome five two two. Guest has awesome five two two. Yeah. Anybody know what that means? <laughs> Doug, can you continue? Well, telling I, you I wrote him and I said, Doug, uh, what is five two two? And he said. Fruit of the Spirit, Galatians oh. 5.22. Oh. <laughs> Obviously, I don't know the Bible as good as you, Doug. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, we want to connect it with Scripture. It was just out there. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. That was very kind of you. Uh, Bob 
Bob Cruikshank says, uh, never thought about all these different perspectives from all these players in the gospel narrative. Great message, Rick. The perspective on Judas was awesome. Uh, coming from the blue-collar scholar, I appreciate that, Bob. <laughs> Love you very much, Bob. And then Norm, um, Norm. Norm says, yeah, so do we believe that Judas actually had saving faith, even though Yeshua said it had been better for him never to have been born? No. I'm not saying that Judas was saved. Absolutely not. In fact, what I'm trying to say is that Judas might have had being chosen and believing in the beginning. He's believing the message, but he's thinking of it in an earthly way. He's following the Messiah in an earthly way. So he's believing, and and Jesus gives him the ability. And I think that once he gets the power to be able to heal these people and cast out demons, that he wanted to usher in the kingdom to the world this way, right now, his way. I think that's the problem with Judas, is that it's always his way, not the Lord's way. Right. Yeah, and so, I, I, never, I never got that you were saying that Judas was saved, but another junior, and junior is from Canada, I believe. He said, we appreciate the message, praise the Lord. And then he says, how can we say Judas was saved when Jesus said, they have not chosen you, but 12 of you want to use the devil? That's right. And so he's going the same route. You're exactly You're right. That. No, I'm absolutely not saying that Judas was saved. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying that Judas was the betrayer. He was the, he had the devil in him. He was doing the wrong thing because he was trying to usher in the kingdom his way. It's like He's like playing a game of thrones, and it didn't work for him. And I think the remorse that he felt was it didn't work. That's the end of it. And he would often hang himself. And again, he never heard all of the things that Jesus told the other disciples. He missed all of that. So he definitely wasn't saved. Yes, sir. And to me, this is the main purpose of Q&A. Did you say this? No, I didn't say that. Right. And you can you know, explain. Because like I said, I didn't get that from the message at all. But obviously some people did. So now you can clear it up. And that's... That's awesome. I like right. Q&A because I'm used to churches where if you ask questions, they throw you out. Right. <laughs> so I like that at this church. Yeah. 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 Get out. Your perspective of Judas, I compare that to future today. You're trying to bring in the kingdom by doing all these extra things. That's a great. Israel yeah. And building the temple and stuff like that. Yeah, I remember the first time I ever heard Pastor Curtis say, the temple will never be built, people. That's what you said. That temple will never be built, people. And I thought about that one day, and I thought, you know what? He's absolutely right. How could it happen? How could the Lord let it happen? But there are Zionists that are trying to usher in the kingdom their own way, and you see the effect it has on our society. So it's our job. We're responsible for this generation. It's our job to change that. Andrew, it's your job to change that. Luke, it's your job. Uh, Andrew said last night that he's concerned about his generation. Amen. Get to work. We'll help you. Get out there. And we'll help you. Because we need to help You know, these people that are considering the future destruction that we lose down here. What a sad way. I was in that way for a long time. I don't want that anymore. I'm thankful to have a kingdom. Amen. I'm so thankful. And everything that Jesus said he was going to do, he did it. I love that. You don't have to do verbal gymnastics and make excuses for me anymore. Soon met soon. We need to end this thing soon. That's it for, that's it for the questions. About a couple thousand years. Yeah, you got to go. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Pastor. That's it. Thanks, guys. Why don't you go ahead and just close in prayer? Though. Okay. Father, thank you for all of those people that reached out. It blessed my heart. Uh, people from Canada and, and around the country and 
And uh, Lord, I'm thankful for what you what you've done with this place. What an amazing thing you've done here! I ask that you would continue to bless this place to get this message of hope and the kingdom out into the world. I am thankful for my own salvation and for all of my brothers and sisters that I have here. Be with us the rest of the day, God. And as I travel back home, uh, Lord, just help us to get there safely and be with each one. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey guys, this is Rick from the boroughs of Berea. Do you know how much blood, sweat, and tears it takes to make a podcast? None. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't cost a lot. And so if you guys don't mind, if anybody would like to give to help us with these episodes, it would be great. We'll put out even more content. And if you go to our Patreon page, just search for the boroughs of Berea, you'll get extra notes, extra episodes, and it's pretty much free. A dollar gets you a lot. Thanks, guys. Ow, Greg. Greg is clawing me.